Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We're currently working on bonus episodes about Amazon Studios' cinematic new series Tales from the Loop and Westworld. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Our co-host, Genevieve Kosky, I'm afraid cannot be with us. She is in detention. With movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing our shelter-in-place special series, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we'll be looking at two films about high school and the ways the issues within high school can serve as a mirror to the world at large. I'm looking for someone who can tell us about what we have planned this week. Anybody? Anybody? Me, me, me. Uh, me, Scott. My hands up. Uh, This week we watched a movie from 1999 called Election. It was about like a teacher and a student and... uh... Okay. Sounds like you're heading in the right direction. Uh, Anything else? Keith. Me. Uh, Scott. Scott, go ahead. Uh, I I think the other one was called Bad Education and had like Wolverine in it. Keith. Okay. Me, 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 me. Okay. Tasha, your turn. Go. (sighs) Well... This week, we're discussing Alexander Payne's sophomore film, The Dark 1999 Comedy Election, starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. Payne and writing partner Jim Taylor adapted it from a 1998 novel by Tom Parada, initially inspired by the 1992 presidential election, although I think we can all agree that the story had already taken on a broader resonance in 1999, and that it's only broadened further in the years since its release. Then we're going to talk about Bad Education, another sophomore film, this one by Corey Finley, whose previous release, thoroughbreds we covered in episode 121 which we released on march 21st 2018 based on a real life incident the film stars hugh jackman as the superintendent of a school that becomes embroiled in a financial scandal that goes even deeper than a first appears the film also stars oh it looks like that's all we have time for at the moment we'll be right back after the break (sighs) scott uh, see me after class Move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. The next candidate for student body president is Paul Metzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. I think you did it. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. And do not often speak with you and ask for things. But now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow, because I deserve it and Paul Metzler doesn't, as you well know. The final candidate, sophomore Tammy Metzler. I'm attracted to the person. It's just that all the people I've ever been attracted to happen to be girls. You should stop her. She's not qualified. We can't both run, can we? I mean, we're brother and sister, can we? Tracy and I are totally in love. In love? Yeah. So is this a moral situation or an ethical situation? When I win the presidency, that means you and I are going to be spending a lot of time together. (laughs) Cast your vote for Tracy Flick next week. You won't just be voting for me. You suck! You'll be voting for yourself. Who knew how high she would climb in life? 
I had to stop her. Excuse me! Will you please be quiet? Now. What's the difference between ethics and morals? Civics teacher Jim McAllister asks his class in an early scene in an election. One of them, Tracy Flick, definitely knows the answer, but Jim's not really interested in what she has to say. Some of the other students sort of know the answer, so Jim tries to coax it out of them before their ums and likes make him surrender and call on Tracy, who starts to deliver a textbook definition of each before the bell cuts her off. But textbook definitions are one thing and practical application another, and by the movie's end, the two characters who've given more thought to ethics and morals than anyone else around them have lapsed in one or the other, maybe both, depending on where you draw the line between where ethics end and morality begins. And as clear-cut the ethical violation that ultimately undoes Jim's career may look, specifically the suppression of two votes in an attempt to thwart Tracy's bid to become a student body president, in the moment, he seems to have regarded it as a moral choice. Tracy destroyed election signs, then lied about it. That's reason enough to use his power to keep her from winning, right? Besides, she's Tracy Flick. You can't let Tracy Flick win because... Because why exactly? Election underperformed at the box office in the spring of 1999, but it found its audience not long after, and that audience has only grown since then. And as it has grown, Tracy Flick has become, in the true sense of the word, iconic, a representation of a certain type of striving, success-oriented young person whose ambition is matched only by their need for approval. It's rarely a compliment, however. And why is that? Tracy works hard, and as a child of a single mother of modest means, has had to overcome disadvantages her classmates haven't. She's also been the victim of sexual exploitation at the hands of a now-dismissed teacher, and yet even this hasn't made her cynical. She is, by all appearances, a true believer. So why is she so hard to like? Maybe it's because shifting points of view are built into the construction of election and, consequently, we spend a lot of time in Jim's head, and Jim hates her. But the question of why still persists. Jim was friends with Dave Novotny, the teacher who left under cloud after his relationship with Tracy came to light. Jim disapproved of Dave's behavior, but he still seems to resent Tracy for his friend's downfall. But he can't quite admit this to himself, just as he can't acknowledge that Tracy is starting to interfere with his sexual fantasies. And it's almost certainly no accident that his rigging of the election comes on the heels of a disastrous attempt at an affair with Dave's wife, one that's left him thrown out of his home and with an eye swollen to grotesque dimensions by a bee sting. Putting Matthew Broderick in the halls of a high school unavoidably calls on his cinematic past. And though Jim still looks like a slightly older Ferris Bueller on the outside, the film's final acts finds his appearance now suggesting a kind of inner monstrousness that's come to the surface. So he makes an unethical decision for ostensibly moral reasons. But whatever justification he might offer is nonsense. The film lets us see, even if Jim can't, that his decision is really ultimately the result of Dave's sexual exploitation of Tracy – what critic Dana Stevens has called the film's primal bad decision. But then again, is Jim wrong to try to change his outcome? Tracy's belief in democracy seems to end when it doesn't work in her favor. She resents running against the popular athletic Paul, played by Chris Klein, Jim's puppet candidate, even if Tracy only suspects this, and she seems insulted by the third-party candidacy of Paul's sister Tammy. The system is supposed to promote the best and brightest, and clearly she, and only she, fits that description. It's, to use a favorite Tracy Flick word, her destiny. Is her destruction of election posters just the first suggestion that her ambition will get the better of her ethics? Does Jim's gut instinct to dislike Tracy, an instinct shared by others, speak to a moral unfitness beneath her immaculately put-together outfits? Or do they just dislike her because she's a young woman who wants too much and wants it too badly and too publicly? 
Set in Washington, D.C., the film's final scenes suggest Tracy has taken her first steps to ascending to the corridors of power and leaves the implications of that an open question. Jim's fate, on the other hand, is no mystery. He's undone by a 48-hour stretch of moral lapses and ethical slip-ups. In the end, even he can't answer the question he poses to his students. You know, instead of wasting your time interrogating me, we should be out there trying to figure out who did this. Okay, Tracy. Who do you think did it? Whom should we interrogate? Well, I don't know. You know, it could have been anybody. There's a lot of subversive elements here at Carver. Like Rick Thiessen or Kevin Speck and those burnouts. Or what about Tammy Metzler? I mean, her whole thing is being anti-this and anti-that. Tracy, you're a very intelligent girl. You have a lot of admirable qualities. But one day, maybe you'll learn that being smart and doing whatever you need to do to get ahead, and yes, stepping on other people to get there, well, there's a whole lot more to life than that. And in the end, you're only cheating yourself. Why are you lecturing me? Okay, so you tend to ask like what everyone's history of this uh, with this movie is. So I want to do that as well. But also, has your opinion on these characters kind of shifted over the years or not? Scott, why don't you go first? Yeah, well, I mean, standard history. I loved this film when I saw it uh, in 1999, which is a huge year for movies. And I, I love it now. It's probably uh, my favorite Alexander Payne film. Uh, there are a couple of other contenders. But this stands pretty tall. I mean, as far as how it might have changed now. I mean, I think the sexual exploitation element of it is something that we are much more sensitive to, much more keenly aware of now than in 1999. Maybe I shouldn't say we, maybe I should say I. But in terms of its implications and its impact on the narrative, what you said in the keynote about the sort of primal sin, I guess that was Dana Stevens from her Criterion uh, essay, I think? Yes, yes, she uh, did that. Yeah, so, so um, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. It's just one of those movies that you just keep coming back to because, one, satires of any kind, much less political satires, are rare and rarely done well, and this was done really well. And as such, the allegory that we can just constantly apply to the real world. So you often find yourself reflecting on this movie in relation to various political developments that are happening in the country. And so I think this film has remained fresh and it remains something that you just kind of, you always want to kind of dig into because it does feel eternally relevant. So uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. Tasha, how about you? I don't recall exactly when I saw this movie for the first time. It was relatively close to when it came out, but I think maybe I didn't see it until it came out on home video as opposed to seeing it in the theater. And I remember at the time finding it very sour, just feeling that it was very down on and dismissive, particularly of young women in a way I found kind of unpalatable. It does play very differently for me today. And part of that is just growing up a little more and being a little more distant from, I was never a Tracy Flick per se. I I never had that level of perkiness, as you can well imagine. (laughs) But I certainly, I think, maybe had more empathy for some of the other players in the story than I do these days. Like these days, the whole thing plays to me like, a farce, a a kind of an antic farce where everyone is equally at fault for interesting reasons. Mm -hmm. And it just seems so much more nuanced than most of the stories kind of in this vein that we get. You know, most of the stories we get about the relationship between teachers and students or the relationship between the power hungry and the people who who are watching them with some sort of horror as they ascend. 
these days to me, it just reads like a really well put together kind of dismissal of the system in a lot of different ways. It's so complicated. Like as the story starts to build and you realize how many different points of view you're going to see and how all of those different points of view are going to affect the movie, it keeps veering in directions that feel very non-standard. And I, I end up appreciating it on a construction level as much as anything else. Although, of course, it's it's kind of hard not to enjoy the kind of emotional callbacks to Ferris Bueller's Day Off with Matthew Broderick kind of like switching his role, you know, becoming the thing that Ferris Bueller would have hated, the administrator with too much interest in his students' behavior and too much investment in their lives. And reaching forward in the same sort of way, looking at Reese Witherspoon back then and, and kind of thinking about what her career has been like since then just sort of shades the film in some interesting and fun ways, I think. Yeah, it feels like he's not exactly Ferris Bueller grown up, but he's definitely someone who thinks he's cooler than the average teacher, you know? And I think that's one of the many ways in which Jim is deluding himself. And I think that's kind of what I see more now than before. I mean, I was out of college by several years when this movie came out, but I was probably still I guess maybe halfway between Tracy Flick's age and Jim's age when I saw this. And I thought it was so much more sympathetic without being on her side. I feel uh, entirely, I feel so much more sympathetic to Tracy than I did at the time when I thought uh, it was just sort of an outrageously uh, unlikable character. And now I kind of feel for her a little more, considerably more even. And and also I, I see... Uh, as we were talked about before, I see like fairly horrific abuses of power. I mean, Dave, obviously, and, and taking advantage of her, her sexually, but also, why are you so wrapped up in this election, Jim? You know, this is this, these are kids. You're supposed to be letting them experience democracy and let it happen on its own. You know, and and his narration is is I think it's one of the better parts of the movie is is how detached his narration is from the reality of his life in some ways. Although I got to admit, I don't think that. Being a resident expert in a museum in New York is the worst fate, <laughs> or as bad of a fate as it's kind of uh, put, really. I, I felt it was a very positive ending. Uh, one of the things that surprised me about revisiting this film, since I remembered a lot of the tonal and character elements uh, and a lot of the buildup, but not really the the denouement. It feels like a pretty happy ending. People mostly get what they want. <laughs> even mm. even some of the more outlier characters. You end up with a lot of uh, very unhappy wives whose husbands have cheated on them. But the POV characters that we see the most of seem to me to have come to fairly happy places. And that shot of Jim in New York talking to a couple of people and describing mentally his encounters with some of his old students. We're not entirely clear on whether they're both old students of his or just one is. But clearly, they're a gay couple. Um, they're a little edgy. They're just, you know, one of them's dressed in a, like, skin-tight black outfit that exposes uh, the front of his midriff, but not his back. Uh, they're, you know, just generally, like, wearing piercings. They They look like the kind of couple that you would see casually on the streets of New York and think nothing about it. But it encourages you to think of how that would play in Omaha, where he came from. And it just feels like in that moment... He's achieved a level of happiness, not just because he's working in a museum and he feels he's still educating people, but because he's graduated into a, a bigger world where the kinds of things that he got so embroiled in matter a lot less. It feels like an unequivocally happy ending to me. I'd say it's more equivocal than that. Well, I mean, he's got, he's got a crappy you? apartment and he's a crappy garden apartment. His girlfriend sure, no, nice I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's fine. I, I mean, I, I, it's a very elegant ending. It seemed like the right fate for him. It seemed well-balanced, I think. 
you know, and I guess on you know, I mean, it's I think Dave Novotny is probably doing what. I guess he's fortunate he's not in jail, but he's, <laughs> he seems to be doing what he would he would be doing, given his uh, reputation at this point. It, you know, and obviously Tracy is where, where Tracy is, which doesn't necessarily refute Jim's point of view on on her either. You know, I think that you can see this film and come away with a lot of positive feeling for Tracy. I mean, there are aspects of that character. I mean, her social class and the way the film handles that is so masterful i think and such an important element of the film that she's not like paul and tammy she doesn't come from money things are hard for her she has to get up early she has to be making her own posters and her own you know buttons and she has to have the hustle to beat people who just are you know amiable dunces like paul Uh, and then you also feel for her loneliness you know and just her thoughts about dave are sort of poignant and that she talks about how she misses their talks and you you get that of course that sense that that was the trade-off for her for this violation that was just like oh this is somebody who's going to listen to me and be my friend and obviously there's a, a great deal of sadness to go along with that but at the same time the character of tracy flick reminds me so much of the character of sammy glick from what makes sammy run the great bud schulberg novel in that she is a creature of pure ambition and you don't necessarily know what it is that she wants <laughs> other than power. It's like this empty, relentless, kind of scary ambition you know, that doesn't really align itself with a mission to make anybody's lives better other than her own personal ascendance. Well, it comes from a place of superiority. Uh, the sort of montage sequence where everybody's praying the night before the election, what she says in her prayer is effectively, I want to win because I'm the best person. I, I It's obvious that I should win because I'm superior to all of them. And I think that's what makes her so repellent is, you know, it's not her tryhardness. It's not her loneliness or her separation in class or in popularity. It's that she tries hard to a point of kind of repulsion because she inherently believes she's better than everybody else. And that's just an attitude that's off-putting. Keith, you talked about Jim being too tied up in this election and how he should just like go away and let his students be students, like let them be kids. But he does have a stake in this. And the stake is having to work with her personally and closely. Like that sequence where he's lying in bed with her uh, superimposed mouth hovering by his ear, talking about all the time they're going to spend together. To me, it Mm -hmm. feels less like it's framed as an administrator getting too wrapped up in his student lives and more like the problem is that they're all kids. The problem is that he's just as immature as everybody else. And the idea of spending time with her is repellent to him in a a very kid sort of way. I think you might be right. But also, I feel like Dave's affair with her has kind of awakened him to her presence and maybe her sexuality in a way that makes him uncomfortable and the stirring feelings that he can't really admit to himself and kind of creeps in during that one uh, awkward sex scene uh, with all the yeah. floating heads in it, you know. I think that's an element, too. It's kind of an unspoken element that he can't even really admit to himself. Though there's almost kind of a rage in his kind of reaction shots during that moment, you know. Like, that. Like mm. it doesn't seem like it's a turn-on necessarily. It seems more like he's sort of just angry that his mind has been <laughs> sort of, like, invaded by her. Or maybe and maybe it just has to do with again as you say kind of a trouble processing how he 
feels about her in that respect. And of course it has to do with what mm-hmm. happened to his friend. I mean, I, you know, the film does make it What happened to his uh, friend? So, well, I don't mean to say. You know, I mean what in terms of in terms no, of No, I like, know, I know. No, but I don't want to I don't want to sure. yeah, make it seem like obviously I'm not <laughs> using some sort of like passive voice. I mean, I, Dave was actively predatory, but the film makes it, you know, clear enough that Jim was repulsed by it and felt he needed to stop. But I think you're right that there is, still is this kind of like you know, alignment that he feels with his friend and that results in a certain amount of deeply unfair hostility towards Tracy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that his hostility towards her over Dave is unfair. And the conversation, the not very coded conversation they have where he effectively accuses her of engineering his friend's downfall is patently unfair and yeah. she calls him out on it uh, but then she's deeply unfair in turn one of the things i like about this film is that the kind of lack of of clear villain the things that she does in that conversation both in terms of denying something that she actually did and denying it with a great deal of like self-righteousness and outright abuse of both him and eventually tammy just continually makes her the villain in the piece regardless of what was done to her I find all of the language that you use around her affair with Dave, like in terms of, of violation and predatory, like monsters and all of this stuff, interesting because Dave is such a hapless character. He's such a nebbish. He's such a nerd in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. He's a rock and roller, oh, yeah. Tasha. What are you talking about? He's got that. He jams he, out the He definitely and... has an image of himself as a rock and roller, but that's not what the casting says and that's not what the framing of him says. And I, I think that that's very deliberate because if if he were a more like confident or capable or attractive or predatory looking or acting man, the cast of all of that perhaps could not come across as sort of like darkly comedic as it does. But I, I don't know. I have a hard time thinking about it in terms of uh, like his vicious predatory abuse of power when he has so little power in the world or as a person or in relationship to his wife. Like he's hapless. And the fact that something that hapless could successfully like manipulate and seduce this woman just tells us a lot of interesting things about how deeply naive she is under all of the the confident go-getterism yeah both he and jim seemingly can't have affairs without convincing themselves that they're in love with this person and and they kind of buy into the whole idea of destiny too which is an idea that keeps coming out throughout this film uh the idea that that this this has to happen because it's it's you know a force more powerful them and that's kind of just a sneaky way of, of letting yourself off the hook for your choices. There's a degree to which this film is just effectively about self-justification. I mean, if there's a theme here, mm. I think even more so than democracy or people getting in over their heads, I think it's just self-delusion. I think it's the degree to which people live lives inside their heads that don't necessarily jibe with what anybody else sees or feels about the world. And we get a really strong image of that early on with Dave seemingly being really convinced, as I think many predators are, that the underage girl he set his sights on is so mature and so worldly and so much older than her age that it's okay. And then convincing himself Mm. that he's in love with her and it's a a vast, meaningful thing. It just kind of rhymes with all of the delusion, the self-delusion that we see out of pretty much every other character here. So we've 
already established the election as a satire and as a satire about democracy. I wonder if it reaches any conclusions. Is it a system like that's flawed beyond repair, or is it a good system that kind of counts on people to, within it to behave ethically? And maybe that itself is some kind of flaw. Where do you feel like this film lands in terms of its main topic, which is elections? I think it's pretty cynical about how democracy actually functions. And I think that cynicism is sort of carried over from Citizen Ruth, which was Payne's first film, the mm. film he made before this, and was about you know Laura Dern as someone who sort of volleyed back and forth between both sides of the you know abortion issue and i think that the way things do get politicized and abstracted it brings out the worst in everyone <laughs> you know the process is a process that attracts the wrong type of people and it incentivizes them to act in both morally and ethically dubious ways that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise so i think the film's attitude is um deeply cynical about how democracy actually operates and what kind of people are involved in, in our democracy. I feel like it's very cynical, but it, that it does actually reach conclusions. And those conclusions don't have much to do with whether democracy is a good system or a bad system. I think the two really clear conclusions it reaches is one, that democracy is very vulnerable to manipulation by unethical people who love power and are willing to do anything to get to it, and by well-meaning dunces who get the popularity vote. Uh, it's <laughs> manipulatable by a lot of different people in a lot of different circumstances, and not necessarily it doesn't necessarily draw the best and brightest when it can so easily draw other kinds of people. Second, I think it comes to the conclusion through Tammy's entire uh, abortive run for student body president that people are tired of the system, tired of the process, tired of the compromises, tired of feeling like who they elect doesn't make a difference and that they don't have any power. And when offered the extremely cynical chance to just chuck it all, uh, they're more excited by that, by the premise of real change even if that real change is anarchy and giving up than they are by just about any choice within the system itself. So we said something about this film getting more yeah. resonant over the years. Yeah. I, I, I might be, I might be talking a little bit about the present day. Team Tammy, right? <laughs> right, guys. <laughs> Man, she really throws a well, wrench I mean, into the works with her, her spite fueled anarchic despair driven uh, election gambit, but it makes the story so much more interesting. And in the end, I'm very pleased that she gets exactly what she wants. Oh, she's so good too. That, that I love that character and that actress. Um, Who kind of disappeared yeah, she from was acting? Something else. Uh, I wrote. I kind of wrote a piece. She was in Freaks and Geeks. She was the. Um, I'm not sure what the right term is, but she's the 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 woman that Seth. Yeah, yeah. Geeks. That was. I mean, I think those were kind of her two big roles, and that was the end of it. But um, I really, really like her here, and uh, and her dynamic with her brother, who is just. Perfect. I mean, just <laughs> Chris Klein, I think was a discovery, right? With somebody, you know, because I know painted mm -hmm. it. I think they were both from Omaha. Yeah, they like, painted a mistaken. ton of casting of locals, which I think pays off just massively in so many different ways. And of course, Chris Klein stuck enough to be able to, you know, appear in other movies, but. I just everything he says in this film just cracks me up. I mean, like the one thing, the line that got me this time was right at the end when he was kind of like thinking about what his life would have been like if he'd actually been student president that year, his senior year. What he's thinking about is not necessarily how his decisions would have changed the school, but about like, hey, maybe I would have died. 
you know, if my life had gone <laughs> in that path. Oh, it's so good. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is a satire. This is a comedy, and it does have, uh, you know, a lot of laughs. And, and uh, Chris Klein's performance as Paul uh, delivers a whole bunch of them. Yeah, and it it maybe actually open up uh, the door to a third definitive conclusion about American democracy, which is the best we can possibly hope for is an amiable, harmless dunce, <laughs> as opposed to uh, like a malicious, incompetent dunce, because he is such a delight, and it, the the movie just balances so well. It, it rides so nicely on that line between he's so stupid that he's laughable, and he's stupid enough that he's charming like his bottomless optimism and goodwill towards tracy towards the system towards the process towards winning or losing towards not voting for himself uh, which ends up deciding the election all of these things just make him the story is like one unequivocally good character and I, I, like i it's not the big lunk uh jock is not a character that you often see in american uh, high school cinema as like the unequivocal good guy and that's just it's so refreshing here well one one kind of underrated or under untalked about moment i think i don't know why i said untalked about we're going to talk about it right now because i'm going to talk about <laughs> it is is that when paul does win for that brief moment and he approaches uh mr m at a pizza joint with his parents and asked to kind of spend time with him alone, like he immediately, he has ideas for what he wants to do as president. And those ideas are not bad, you know? And, and they actually sound like the type of no. ideas that that somebody in student government could accomplish. You know, you're not going to be able to affect school policy in any meaningful way, but, you know, you might be able to get kind of a cool prom theme or something going or whatever it was that he wanted to do. Although to be fair, the the party we do see is is a quote unquote Mexican party. Oh, right, the one, <laughs> the one at the at the cement plant or whatever he's at. Yeah. Yes, it looks it, it looks does, a little it dubious. It does look a little dubious, but but I think that there is something with him where it's like he wants to make people happy. He kind of gets along with everybody. I think his presidency may not be transformative, but I think he he could have the rest of the student body in mind. And that's something Tracy may not have. I mean, I think she has a sense of her own ambition. If you're going to be really uncharitable to her, I think that's one of the things that makes her difficult to like. Though I know Genevieve is somewhere out there. <laughs> every word, every every word, every yeah, bad I, word I, I say about was... Tracy Flick, I know she's definitely on board a lot more with Tracy than maybe the rest of us. But um, so I feel a little bad saying that. But I also wonder, like, what it, what Tracy's vision would be for the school that would actually improve things. I mean, I guess she would know her stuff. She would know areas in which she could do something, but we get more about plans, about actual initiatives from Paul in that brief moment than we ever do from Tracy. I'm going to put out a call for our listeners to perhaps someone should write in with a question that will allow Genevieve just kind of like uh, to uh, defend Tracy Flick yeah. in a future episode. <laughs> that question may be, why do you, why are you defending Tracy Flick? <laughs> Yeah, she has good qualities. And I mean, and I, again, I think that her social class is so important and such a complicating factor, such a brilliant touch to have her be somebody who rides the bus and who isn't popular and who has to grind it out. You know, I mean, this is not an election. She just puts her name on the ballot. I mean, Paul just puts his name on the ballot. He gets all the way there, almost. And with, of course, Mr. M's help, he, he does get all the way there. But she needs every single vote, and every single vote that she gets, you sense she has earned, because people don't necessarily like her that much, and she's not popular, and she doesn't have money, 
And so she has to go out and earn those votes. And, you know, that's it's impressive. It's impressive that she gets as far as uh, she does through Hustle alone. We should talk about the afterlife of Tracy Flick and how the name has become a shorthand for a brand of pretty much exclusively female politicians. I mean, the comparison came up a lot. Uh, as as our friend Dana Stevens points out in her criterion, I say again a lot during Hillary Rodham Clinton's run uh, for presidency, and and not necessarily in flattering terms, and and uh, that's kind of not fair. I think there's been a little bit of redemption of the type by way of Amy Poehler's character Leslie Nope on Parks and Recreation, which is kind of all the positive qualities of Tracy Flick with none of the negative qualities too. But I mean, the character has definitely lived on outside the movie. But Leslie Nope is an interesting comparison. And I think Leslie is someone who has just a general affinity and passion for women in politics. She has a lot of ambition herself and you get the sense that the, whatever blowback she gets is related to her gender to a large extent. I mean, and coupled with the fact that she's in a small town in Indiana, but um but yeah, I think that public and media perceptions of women of ambition, women who want power, I mean, we, we've seen that script play out <laughs> in very discouraging ways. Yeah, there are a lot of ugly prejudices about women in power or women seeking power, and a lot of them boil down to this, to this idea that they're all kind of a chipper little airheads. Tracy is very smart, but she's very smart in a crafty, cunning sort of way that doesn't actually seem to touch on intelligence exactly. She's good at memorizing facts. When she calls, when she puts her hand up in class and she explains the difference between ethics and morals, it's like she's memorized a dictionary, but she hasn't internalized any of it. Mm. She clearly, as the film shows, doesn't care about actual ethics or actual morals. What she cares about is memorizing the right facts and getting the right kind of approval. And there's a cynicism about the intentions and beliefs of female politicians that I think this character mirrors. And I look at I look at Hillary Rodden Clinton's run for president. I look at uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign. I look at AOC and how the reactions to her and Kamala Harris and uh, just a lot of stuff that's going on in politics right now. And I see that same sort of there's a lot of cynicism and dismissal that goes into looking at any politician, like a feeling that they're all hypocrites, that they're all kind of on the take. But it takes on a much pettier and meaner aspect when looking at female politicians. And part of that, I think, is just because that level of ambition simultaneously threatens inadequate people, which we see a lot of in the film, like the burnouts of the school hate Tracy with a passion. And I think part of the magic of the film is that you can understand why. You can kind of sympathize a little with why they would hate somebody who is so alien to them in her like work ethic, but also just in her need for approval. So yeah, it's it's complicated. The The things that are coming up here, I think, are indicative of a lot of the problems with women and American politics and how they're seen, how they're portrayed. But it's also both a little more understanding of her and a little more understanding of everybody that hates her and why they hate her. Yeah, Tasha, you mentioned before the construction of this film, and, and it really is a film I hadn't seen it in a few years, but it's a film I've seen a few times over the years. And, and each time you see it, you can see the little touches that really make it up, like the way you know fruit, the, the you know apples keep coming up, but also like the choice between fruit uh, is is a whole running thing. You know, Jim's loyalty to Pepsi uh, when it's established that it's a perpetual loser or the Color Wars, it seems like a good personality choice. I the detail I always latch on to is that 
can of diet mug root beer that Dave hands to Tracy shortly before uh, seducing her. Uh, and it's just the, the saddest beverage <laughs> ever made. Ugh. You know, what's, what's sadder than diet root beer? Diet root beer that's not A&W, <laughs> like some off-brand root beer, you know. It certainly lends itself to repeat viewings and close analysis. But Tasha, what about you? You mentioned admiring the construction. What, what were you referring to? I was referring to the, the POV shifts. Like early on, it mm. seems like this is going going to be the Jim POV movie. Like here is how this world looks from his eyes. Like this was all a disaster and here's how it came apart in his eyes. And then I can't remember if we get his internal monologue or Tracy's first, but it seems fairly clear it's going to be like a he said, she said thing. And then we jump into Paul's POV and Tammy's POV. (laughs) And there's just, there's a lot as we get deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, as more and more characters pop up, by the time Tammy is making out with Lisa and Lisa's pulling back from her, I, there's just a moment of where the hell does this fit into this story? And that keeps happening. Like, well, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Oh, okay. Well, where is this piece going to get fit in? Oh, there's a feeling of pieces slotting like neatly and perfectly into place throughout the first and second acts. And then (laughs) the whole tower just being pushed over in the third act that I just found very pleasing, particularly every time the stakes and the setup shifted. At the point where Jim puts Paul up to running, you sort of think, okay, it's it's going to be like his candidate versus Tracy, our other kind of POV candidate. And then Tammy enters the mix and, and messes everything up and comes in with a different angle on it. The whole like election, actual election count scene where you've got those two kids there who are so self-righteously sure of their count and so baffled as to why they they know something's gone wrong. They know that there's chicanery. They know that the adults are lying to them. They just don't know what to do with it. Uh, They have no authority to appeal to. That's something we're going to see also when we look at HBO's Bad Education in the next episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just, it's such a relatable moment. So there are a bunch of little details like that that I love where we don't get their internal monologues, but like very, very clearly in the moment where the one kid is just like staring at Jim like this, but this doesn't make sense. That isn't what I counted. You can almost hear what his POV uh, voiceover would be like as well. I love the timing of that scene. It's a slow build up. To, it's a spitting moment. Uh, it's uh, That's well done. I mean, yeah, and just the, the, the assembly scene is just incredible i mean like, like that's kind of the scene of the of the movie for me the way that because it is this coalescence of all of those angles of all of these points of view that we've been introduced to all these narrators they all kind of come together for these speeches and the speeches just feel so true the detail of how a would-be professional politician like tracy would you know open and close with this quote and kind of have this very neatly constructed speech and and paul who is a total amateur you know reads off a piece of paper and and seems very nervous doing it and then you know tammy's just absolute swagger and just anticipating the kind of reaction she's going to get from the students and then just dropping this bomb into their laps it's just so satisfying you know and the, the whoever i can't remember the actor but the guy who plays the principal in this I mean, it's just the cast. It's just so it's so funny. Yeah, 
Where have I many, seen him before? Uh, he's really uh, good. Many films. He's just one of those kind of that guy guys. Uh, and this also has his assistant principal was kind of the weaker guy in the company of men. He was, you know, Matt Malloy. Matt Malloy. Mm. But I mean, the thing is about Alexander Payne is I always obsess over the details in his movies. I mean, you mentioned the mug root beer. I mean, I can think of things like. Jim like you know washing his scrotum in, in, in like the hotel in the hotel bathtub. I mean like that's a kind of, that's a that's a very Alexander Payne uh, moment. But also I just I I find my my eyes always drifting to what people look like and what they're wearing and what their haircuts are like and what their what their living rooms and kitchens look like. I mean all of those details are so meaningful and so deeply Midwestern in Payne's work. I mean, it feels like coming home for me, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I was a, I grew up in a, you know, at a fairly small suburb of Toledo in a, a Ohio, and it, it just, it does feel like kind of coming home when I see an Alexander Payne film. It's not this fake, you know, heartland. It is like the spaces in his films are, are so deeply lived in and so and funny. I mean, I just, I've, I, yeah, so that, that's kind of my experience beyond, you know, the, one of the reasons I, I, I like watching Election you know, over and over again and other films of his over and over again is because I, I actually start to disengage a little bit from the main story just to kind of engage in um, what he's doing just with the backdrop godfather's pizza great local detail <laughs> so is the walgreens that jim pulls into when he's mm. buying flowers and uh and a bottle of champagne for his tryst in that like awful looking but very very realistic midwestern motel oh, thing what's it called like american whole... family Hotel or something. <laughs> something like that yes <laughs> and the whole sequence of him just staging his affair in what looks like it's probably a 49 dollar a night hotel <laughs> like every bit of that like the the scrotum watching washing is uh particularly funny but like every stage of it it's so is, good. Uh, is I mean, kind of funny like, it's just one of those things you just you don't see in the, in the movies it's so good Another scene that I'd point to is just kind of like fascinating in its detail is the one where he sits down and watches a porn flick. And it's <laughs> something that he's doing because it's it's late at night. He can't sleep. Uh, but we get to see the the uncovering of like where he keeps uh -huh. his porn stash, which that the whole sequence of just like like unfolding and opening and uncovering in order to get to where he hides his porn is very personal and very funny in a super low-key kind of way. And then he's sitting there watching that movie with no real indication of being turned on. I, I just it's, it's something that he's doing casually, probably because he's going to masturbate, probably to help himself sleep. But he's watching... <laughs> something that's meant to be the high school quarterback uh, gearing up for the big game and a, and a cheerleader comes in and seduces him. And the cheerleader looks like she's in her 30s and the quarterback <laughs> looks like he's in his late 40s, which just that alone, like the seamy looking face on the quarterback porn star, I found so hilarious. But it's also going to know how like these high school scenarios stay with us and particularly stay with people that, that – kind of have stayed in, you know, like he says Dave stayed in profession because he doesn't ever want to leave high school, but he's kind of overlooking the fact that he's probably done the same thing himself. Oh, sure. And the fetishizing of cheerleaders and quarterbacks in it just as characters and as concepts in particular, if that scene was played even slightly differently, it would so come across as he's sexualized high school. He doesn't belong in that environment. He's thinking about Tracy as that cheerleader and it's gross. None of it really plays that way. It, it honestly comes across as like he picked up the first 
film on the stack and stuck it in because he was bored. And his mind's clearly not on it because that scene ends with him looking at the Pepsi in his hand and realizing that he should put Paul up for student body government because because Paul is the the off-brand choice, effectively. He's not in the moment there. But like the details of that scene, both in terms of the flat porn dialogue and the actors chosen and the scenario and how it feeds into everything that's going on around him, and then how he reacts to it and doesn't react to it. It's just such a perfectly tuned piece of comedy that could have played so poorly with any of those details changed, I think. For what it's worth, by the way, the the uh, the male actor was Payne's uh, extras casting director. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, my take on that whole the, the psychology there is that uh, he keeps getting older and they stay the same age. Oh, come on, that's from that's from Days of Confused. You get it? No, no. Yes, we recognize right. it. Oh, for God's sake. Uh, yeah, I thought that was... Scott, I've got a quote right, for hit you. Me. Luke, I am your father. All right. That, that was a reference. All right. Anyway, yes, but, the, but, but, it is, but the but the, it, it, the point being, I think there is a a sense of arrested development there that the film plays up, that he is up there. There's a montage of him, of Mr. M giving the same lecture over and over again about the three branches of government. And, you know, it, it's just the same thing happening. He's spinning his wheels and he's getting older and, and, you know, the kids are saying the same, the same age. And he's also, you know, stuck in that environment, which is highly charged. So, uh, and so I feel like that scene plays off it just the right way. I think you, you're right. It could be uh, way less subtle than it ends up being. I've got a question for you, like in that specific vein and that specific detail, Tracy has an inner monologue where she looks down on him uh, as as sad and pathetic and lonely because he teaches the same things over and over because his students keep going on to greater things while he stays there. He looks at her and in his inferior monologue, he's looking down on her for her like reckless ambition and how she'll never be satisfied. Are we meant, in your opinion, to take both of those equally seriously are we meant to sympathize with either one of them and their perspective on the other and are we meant to take either of those things at face value are they both just like engaging in sour grapes because they see the few like happy things that the other has are exactly what they're missing in their own lives and they're just trying to justify and again self-delude themselves into to happiness i don't i don't really have an answer for you uh the film is is uh i think a little slippery that way where it kind of doesn't really tell you where to stand it kind of brings into the kind of i think we're kind of dancing around the the larger issue here too which is always comes about pain film it's like is he looking down on these characters or is he sympathizing with them? And I, I tend to think he's not looking down. I mean, he is an Omaha local. He's a native and uh, these are his people. But at the same time, it's not like he's idealizing them either. I don't know. Is there any sort of – do you feel like in his movies in general and this one in particular, do you feel like the condescension charge sticks or not? I, mean, I never think it does. <laughs> I really never do. I feel like he knows that. Like I said, it feels like I, I'm going home every time I see one of his movies. He takes a comic perspective, and so there's going to be, you know, elements of buffoonishness there and, and exaggeration. But I think he gets—I I feel like he gets it right, and I'm okay with it. I, 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 it always seems like kind of a, a coastal thing to be thinking pain is being condescending to his characters. It doesn't feel like like people mm-hmm. who are from the Midwest have that. Point of view, but maybe I'm wrong about that. It's kind of the Fargo, the Fargo thing yeah, as well. Exactly. 
I'm thinking a little about Sideways and how Sideways did sometimes feel like it was just being relentlessly condescending to some of his characters. But I, I, yeah, I'm I'm with you on feeling like it's a coastal thing. Like it's there's a discomfort with portrayals, with negative portrayals of certain people because the assumption is that it's completely untrue. And I think of those of us that have lived in the Midwest for a long time, feel the specificity of these portrayals as knowing and sympathetic and like people making fun of their own. For some reason, what comes to my mind at the moment is Daniel Scheinert's uh, The Death of Dick Long from last year and how that movie was kind of dinged for, for making fun of Hicks. But he was he's literally talking about the people that he grew up with, the people around him, the people that he recognizes, and the kind of things that they get up to and the kind of people they often are. And it's often sad to see that kind of of like portrayal of the foibles of people around you that you personally know dismissed as like an elitist ignorance of of your own experience, basically. I think we'll wind that down for now, although we'll be bringing the election back next episode when we talk about it in conjunction with uh, Bad Education. We'll be right back after the break with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We're still catching up with old feedback, including one directed at an offhand comment Tasha made a few episodes back. So Tasha, I'm going to ask you to share that one. Can you? (laughs) I can, certainly. Jill writes, I'm a little behind on my podcast watching, so it was only today that I got to the discussion of Panic in the Streets. The highlight for me was not the interesting, as always, discussion, but Tasha's mention of a scene in Beverly Cleary's 15, in which the protagonist, Jane Purdy, is taken to Chinatown on a date, freaks out at the thought of eating Chinese food, and is calmed down with a hamburger. My sisters and I have been making fun of Jane Purdy for 35 years, so it was thrilling to find out the scene had been memorable for someone else. I may have even let out a little shriek. Thanks, Tasha! I will also note that I reread this book last summer and felt more sympathy for a Jane as a product of her time and place than I did as a teen. Yeah, I, I was. I haven't read clearly in years. I keep kind of steering my daughter toward her. But I, used, I don't know that I ever got to fifteen, but I read all like the Henry Higgins books, all the Ramona books. I went I just kind of tore through them at a certain point. Uh, uh, she is a, a treasure, and she's still. You know, I, I kind of wanted to include this letter because uh, she's still with us at the age of one hundred and four. I believe Sunday was her birthday. So, uh, you know, cheers, cheers to Beverly Cleary. Definitely. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that 15 uh, has aged as well as some of those other books. Maybe if I went back and read the Ramona and Beezus books, uh, I'd feel differently about them. But I mean, I remember them as just some of the, at least looking back on them in my teens, I felt like they were some of the most insightful things I had read as a small child about the experience of being a small child. And I, I, if you're bringing them to your daughter, I'd love to know how she takes them and how if you're rereading them or reading them with her, uh, how they play to you today. Yeah, I can't quite steer her toward them, though. It's, 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 it's all Harry Potter and comics at this point. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday. I'm trying to th- th- I know there's been like TV adaptations, but I don't think there's ever been like a film adaptation of one of her, one of her books. Although I guess they don't really lend themselves to – Film There's definitely all been that at well. least one Ramona film, Ramona and Beezus from uh, yeah. 2010. Yeah, no, I take that back. I saw that, and and it was, I think it was okay. I remember being okay. Um, yeah, 
but it's a good cast, but I don't remember that much about it. But I do remember the books from when I was a kid. Scott, were you a Beverly Cleary kid or no, not? I was, a, I was a Judy Bloom guy. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading some mystery series involving where the, where the team of kids was led by this this smart kid named Jupiter. I think his name, his name was. Do you remember this, Tasha? Nope. They, they had, he had they had like a secret kind of. Uh, hideout in the in the backyard or something. I don't know. Somebody I was some... also a Judy Bloom kid. I mean, uh, you can be you can be both things. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't reading, but I don't remember Jupiter. I wasn't reading. You know, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. <laughs> that wasn't what I was reading. But like, but there are some other things that she did that, that uh, I latched on to. I was a pretty decent reader as a kid. Was no yeah, slouch. Judy Bloom and uh, Beverly Cleary both kind of interesting in that. In an age where you were really expected to be writing books for boys or books for girls, they both crossed that gender line and they they wrote books in which uh, Judy Bloom wrote, wrote books very specifically about both the male and female puberty experiences separately, whereas Beverly Cleary did a lot more kind of crossover, you know, the Henry books and the, the Beezus and Ramona books took place in the same neighborhood and were among kids that knew each other. But uh, much like Election, they had uh, really strong POV, like internal monologue kind of things. And it makes me wonder if they were just never that suitable for adaptation for film because they were so so in the heads of the protagonists. Yeah, so I'm not looking back. Like the, the Judy Bloom books I read were like stuff like Blubber and Super Fudge and that kind of thing. I, I, I think I... I missed the ones that people. I think Super Fudge was kind of a, a a big one, but I think I've missed the ones that people point to as being, you know, significant, bold, important, you know, steps forward in the and in, in youth literature. Because I mean, she she certainly, you know, was able to kind of engage in um, controversial, I guess, topics and and get people t- uh, talking. But uh, I was just reading the silly the sillier stuff. I think. Oh, Blubber was not a silly book. Blubber actually. Oh, that's worked, right. It wasn't like, okay. A, a film adaptation of Blubber by Alexander Payne in the exact mode of election uh, would be oh, fire right, right. because th- that book uh, does does the same kind of things with like shifting popularity. Yeah, and no, you're right. I'm missing something and completely and different. Yes, no, no. Of course, that is that wasn't silly. That, but I did read it when I was a kid. That was a different type of uh, a more serious book, wasn't it? Well, now I really want to see. I, it was a. I mean, it was a serious book for for middle school readers. So it was probably eighty pages long. But now I suddenly want to see Alexander Payne's take on Blubber. I think we should. This should be like one of those Scott Ackerman's uh, Adam Scott podcast within a podcast right <laughs> where it's like we're, we're like we're, we're, we've suddenly gone into the uh kid lit podcast within the podcast and, we, and then we and then we get to say good app and move on yeah good up <laughs> good up great up great, great up. up we're fans of the scott awkward adam scott podcast if you have not checked them out it's are you, uh, talking, are you talking are you talking to rem re me is my is my, the one i listen to a sequel to Are You Talking You Too to Me? Both both excellent. Very both essentially yeah. the same podcast. Yeah, um, all right. So we've unavoidably been talking a lot about COVID-19 on recent episodes. And we recently received an email about quarantine viewing habits. Scott, can you share that one? Uh, sure. So Jerry writes, uh, here's my suggestion for stay-at-home order viewing. I've been watching many films that got uh, the U.S. through the Depression and war and post-war era, namely musicals and film noir. I guess this is a common response right now. My twist on it is how you pick your musicals and noirs. For musicals, I just finished an amazing read by Janine Bassinger. My favorite movie writer has just written my new favorite book on film, the the movie Musical, published last year. 
I'm assuming you know her work. As I poured through this book, I kept a running list of the dozens of musicals she writes about and have been watching as many as I can find. I love nothing more than classic Hollywood-era musicals. And Keith, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is my number two film of all time. My noir list comes from an amazing essay on film noir by Paul Schrader in a book called American Movie Critics, an anthology from the silence until now. I'm guessing if Scott didn't know about the Schrader essay on noir, he has already ran from the studio to pick up a copy. Uh, Schrader discusses dozens of noirs, and he has been 100% so far in his recommendations. If you don't like musicals or film noir, how sad for you. The more general recommendation is to find a book discussing the films of a favorite director or genre, read a chapter at a time, and watch the movies discussed in that chapter. I have done that with books on Howard Hawks, Jim Jarmusch, Wes Anderson, Hal Ashby, and David Lynch. It's a wonderful way to school yourself and watch great films in this awful time. Also, have you done any film reading or viewing as described below? And if so, what books would you recommend? I think the Howard Hawks book he's talking about is, is Todd McCarthy's biography. Um, Todd McCarthy, former variety critic and now former uh, Hollywood reporter critic as, as of as of the today, which is oh my God. someone hired Todd. Yeah, they no. let him go. Yeah, I know. Well, that's right. It I mean, sucks. it's really. I mean, Hollywood is in bad shape. I didn't know that McCarthy was yeah. go, was. Uh, I think I think the news just broke. Anyway, great <sighs> writer. Someone someone hire him. Um, oh and his Howard Hawks biography was was something I reviewed for the AV Club years ago, and and it was sort of gave me um, a guidebook to like go through and watch a bunch, not all of Howard Hawks's films, but a bunch of them as I read along. And it was a great experience. And, um, you know, I did that with, I've done that with a couple other directors. Now I think I, I'm a little busy <laughs> to do that, but I think yeah. some of the assignments I seek out are similar attempts to like fill in gaps in my education. Like I, I pitched um, Vulture on a list of, of greatest war movies of all time. And in part, because like I, I had strong opinions about the ones I had seen, but I also wanted a project that would allow me to catch up with some movies I wanted to see. And I, I ended up doing that. Uh, fortunately, I've, I've had pretty good luck landing pieces that double as excuses to watch movies I've been trying to walk, get around to watching for a while. So, uh, but yeah, if he's the well, Wes Anderson book, he's probably referring to is, is uh, the esteemed Matt Zoller Seitz's books on Wes Anderson, which I would highly recommend yeah. as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great thing. If you can go through and read about it and watch them at the same time, I'm kind of doing that. My wife and I are working our way through the James Bond movies one at a time. And I had that new um, oral history of James Bond films that came out a, a, about a month or so ago. So I've kind of been reading each chapter on the film after I watch it. So that's, I guess I have kind of done that too. And that, that's that's a fun project, working your way through some massive series while quarantined. I've never done that with books about a specific director. I've done it with film critics that I particularly respected, although not in a long time, because it's been a long time since I've had that kind of time for discretionary viewing. Yeah, Especially right now with, with COVID, with new movies not coming out. I'm seeing things online every day from people who are out of work and are just chainsawing through movies, building up their education. And I, like as we discussed it, when it first started, we, we kind of talked about where we are in the, um, in the quarantine. I'm busier than ever. And I'm being called on to watch a lot of TV because we're, we need to ramp up our TV coverage. So I don't have a quarantine viewing project per se. But back when I had this kind of time in college, two things that I did. One was uh, go through books by some of my favorite movie critics, which at the time were Kathy Mao and Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison's Watching was a really formative book for me for film criticism. And it was the same sort of thing where he'd have like long form essay after long form essay about film. 
And of course, half of them would contextualize the films in terms of uh, a lot of other films that did similar things and in some cases did them better. Back then, it was a lot harder to find a lot of these films. But wherever possible, if if I knew that he was going to go on for 20 pages about a movie, obviously, I wanted to watch that movie in order to follow along with with what he was saying, with what he was trying to communicate. In college, we also we just basically had the the great big book of Roger Ebert reviews and would just flip through it and look for something that he said, something particularly provocative about good or bad, and then get a hold of that movie and watch it. So I've done that with general film criticism. I've never done it with like follow along with uh, Five Came Back or something along that line. Mm. And uh, maybe maybe when I retire. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> is I can is those were you know I can remember you know reading Truffaut Hitchcock and having that be a nice companion to going through Hitchcock or reading the similar book that Cameron Crowe did with Billy Wilder and, and catching up with some Billy Wilders I hadn't seen and you know maybe my favorite of all of these kind of director books is Sam Fuller's autobiography. Uh, oh, a third, a third face. A third face, which is just incredible. You have, you've never read that book. That's one of my favorite books of all it time. Really I think. Is. <laughs> it really is. It reminds me of, it reminds me of like, you know, the bit in high fidelity where he says, you know, the best book of all time is cash by Johnny cash. Or something. You know, <laughs> it's just like, it is, it is Sam Fuller at his just essence in that book. And I, 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 I really love it. But right now I'm like, I'm, I think I'm everybody else's boat in that, in that if I want to catch up with a lot of these things, it has to be on an assignment. It has to be um, something that I've I've talked people into. I mean, in, in I guess the slight silver lining of COVID nineteen is that there's a market for that now. <laughs> Whatever market there is for anybody, like it is, uh, you know, in retrospective viewing and home viewing, and so um, you you can kind of go back and take a look at some things you hadn't seen before. Maybe not films as, as old as I'd like, but. Um, I'm trying. I'm, I'm you know, yeah. I, I intend to try to work through some of the Rita Hayworth series. It's up on Criterion now. Criterion makes it so easy to kind of just mm-hmm. get into a filmmaker, and I and I do find there's something so gratifying about locking into a director or an actor and just seeing a bunch at a time because you just all those connections between the work and the evolution and everything. It's such an enriching way of getting to know. A filmmaker by watching that person's work um, all all in a rush. I mean, I was able to do that a little bit with Celine Shyama for a piece I did for The Ringer. I watched all four of her films in rapid succession. It was just like, wow, this you can really see that sensibility and development and what she's concerned about and how you know little moments that kind of tie you know film like Tomboy with the film like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I mean, it's all it's all great. And you know, if I had more time between working and homeschooling my kids and whatnot i of course would take advantage because uh you know this is the time to do it i guess okay well we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll return to the halls of high school with Bad Education, a different exploration of ethics and morality in the halls of education. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. 
Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please enjoy a can or two of Diet Mug Root Beer, a refreshing root beery break without all those root beer calories. <laughs>